I invite you to join me now in taking out your Bibles and turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Let's, uh, before we begin, go to the Lord and ask for his help. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we know that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And Father, we are hungry. We are in need of what you alone can provide us. And so, Father, be pleased to open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts that we might know what we are to believe about you and also what you ask of your people. Father, be pleased now through your word and spirit to grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. We are now at week seven in our series, A Life of Sanity in a World of Vanity. If someone asked you the question, how would you describe life in general? How would you describe the Christian life in particular? In other words, what's it like? What is life like? What is the Christian life like? Is that an easy question or a hard question? Did something pop into your mind that the Christian life is like? Well, Scripture gives us many things. In fact, many of the parables of Jesus, he's wanting folks to understand what the kingdom of God is. And so he says, the kingdom of God is like. Well, here, we're going to say that the, king, excuse me, that the Christian life is like a race. Indeed, later in chapter 9, this is what the preacher will say. Again, I saw under the sun the race. The race is not to the swift. We heard in our New Testament reading where Paul writes to Timothy, I have finished the race. He writes to the church in Corinth these words, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And the author to the letter to the Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so in our text today, as we join the preacher with more observations, more thoughts, more questions that he brings to us and we join him, we're going to consider the Christian life as a race, the the human race. Well, let's, before we begin our, in our text, let's go and step back and see Ecclesiastes once again. Solomon, the preacher. Ecclesiastes is helping us stay anchored to our calling to do what? To live by faith in Jesus Christ and not by sight in a fallen world, a world which we all know is full of sin and misery, frustration and futility, confusion and chaos. Ecclesiastes will help us observe the world around us, to open our eyes, to ask not just questions, but to ask better questions. And in doing so, it'll help us distinguish something that's very important between the temporary and the eternal and live accordingly. Ecclesiastes presents the necessity of fearing God in a fallen fallen and frequently confusing and frustrating world. 
The preacher wants all of us then and now to see, to know that life without God is empty, but life with God is fulfilling. We've been saying this every week, and it's important to say again that we've got to be able to see Ecclesiastes through the lens of the New Testament. We've got the completed canon. We've got the finished, revealed Word of God, and we have to see it through the lens of the completed Scriptures. Remember what Jesus said in his last words of instruction before his betrayal, arrest, trial, and crucifixion. He said, in the world, you'll have trouble. But in me, you'll have peace. In the world, it'll be troubled and vain. But in me, you'll have peace, you'll have sanity. And Ecclesiastes helps us then, in the words of Jesus, to take heart, to take courage, to be of good cheer, because it will direct us in the midst of this world. It'll direct us to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who makes us sane and keeps us sane. It's important as we proceed through Ecclesiastes to see the beginning and the end. Remember, he begins and ends with the same words, all is vanity. Not that it's meaningless, but rather it's like a mist. It's a vapor, it's a breath, it's fleeting and empty. He uses the expression striving after wind over and over again to give you that image of trying to capture the wind. At the end, again, he repeats what he said at the beginning, but he also tells you something about the book, that there are words of pleasure, that he's carefully constructed words of delight, but they're words of pain, those, those nails that the shepherd will, will, um, will hammer in, words of pain, but words that provide perspective to fear God and keep his commandments as he sums up everything but also reminds us to prepare for death and judgment. Well, so far we've seen observations under the sun. We've seen a setup for longing of something new and lasting. We saw the preacher Solomon head out on a quest where he says, I've seen everything. I'm a wise man. And we, we walk away often with some text in Ecclesiastes feeling worse than we did when we began, but he is achieving his purpose in doing that. We've seen... The preacher come up empty. He's tried a life of pleasure, empty. A life even of wisdom, empty. A life of toil, empty. The hedonistic life, the contemplative life, the active life, nothing can satisfy. A couple of weeks ago, we asked the question, what time is it? As we looked at chapter 3's first 15 verses and that poem, and we answered the question, what time is it? With these answers, it's time to recognize that control belongs to God and it's time to rest content in God's control. Last week, when we looked at verses 16, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, through the first three verses of chapter 4, we saw injustice and oppression. It was the night, as it were, before Christmas, the, the night before the advent and arrival of the Messiah. It was a night framed by injustice and oppression. If you look at verse 3 of chapter 4, he, the preacher, says that it, you might be better off dead or, or better off not even to have been born considering the oppression, the injustice, and the fact that there was no one to comfort. 
And yet, as we sang about tidings of comfort and joy, with the arrival of Jesus is the arrival of comfort. With the uncorrupted place of justice and the uncorrupted place of righteousness and the ultimate comfort through Jesus. We'll join with me now as I, we pick up where we left off last week, beginning in verse 4 of Ecclesiastes 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and is not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, through, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth, who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So again, life can be viewed as a race, the Christian life as a race. And the preacher wants his reader, wants us to know a little bit about running under the sun, running alone, running together, and running to the end. Let's look at verses four through eight, running alone, running by yourself and for yourself. Verse four focuses once again on the subject of toil, and he makes this observation of of envy and, and working too hard, that work here is motivated by envy, that envy fuels this futile effort to find satisfaction on earth. It's the idea of getting ahead in life by getting ahead of other people. View everyone as rivals. And as you think about envy being this motivation, it's not just the person working alone, running alone, envious and therefore works hard because he wants to get ahead of someone. But think about that same attitude. Oh, well, people are envious of me. So then I've got to keep working harder than them. It's this constant cycle of of envying and then thinking other people are envying you, being jealous in the wrong way of who you are, what you're doing, what you have. So in verse 4, there's this focus on envy and working too hard. But look at verse 5. It's the opposite. It's laziness and not working at all. The fool folds his hands 
and eats his own flesh. You see, the opposite of the man who worked too much was the man who didn't work at all, who refused to work. Rather than joining the rat race of envy, some people just drop out of the race altogether and they self-destruct. I mean, the language eats his own flesh. It, it connotates like the self-cannibalization. You're, you're destroying yourself, you're self-destructing. In Proverbs, Solomon sway, like what? A little sleep, a little folding of the hands and poverty will come on you like a bandit. So there's this envy and working too hard, but now there's laziness and not working at all. But then the preacher moves on in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Here's the preacher calling for balance, calling for moderation, calling for a sufficiency with contentment. It's greater than need. It's, 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 it's contentment greater than excess and the restless toil that it brings. The quiet person, the preacher is saying, is peaceful and composed. He or she has found the right balance. Yes, work hard, but be content with what you have. Because verse 4 and verse 5 are extremes. The extreme workaholic, motivated by envy, toil, toil, toil. And the other extreme is no work at all, lazy. And in many ways, it's easy to be an extremist. It's difficult. It's hard to be moderate. It's hard to be balanced. And yet, that's what he is presenting, this picture of moderation, of balance. But here, it's all leading to verses 7 through 8. And notice that at the introduction to this section in verse 7 and the end of verse 8, its introduction and its conclusion is vanity. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person. It's the sad tale of a solitary individual. No matter how much he gains, there is no one there to share the gain with. Working for himself, not working to bless or benefit anyone else. A lonely, pointless busyness. Living and working only for ourselves is a way, one of the fastest ways to eventual ruin. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other. He doesn't ask the question. He doesn't stop to ask, why am I doing all of this? Why am I toiling? Why am I depriving myself of pleasure? What good is it? What gain is it? And again, this also is vanity and an unhappy business. I mean, here's the businessman working all alone and Solomon, the preacher, observes that it's an unhappy business. So here is running alone, running by yourself and for yourself. Before we move on, let's ask ourselves, are we in the Christian life running alone are we running by ourselves and for ourselves because Solomon now moves from running alone by yourself and for yourself he turns from this solitary individual to the team 
running together, running with others and for others. And here is this big contrast now between running alone and running together. To sum up the verses 9 through 12, it's really that first expression, two are better than one. It's mathematics. It's two greater than one. Here he's going to outline not a solitary, isolated life, but a life lived in partnership with others. Better to share our life and work than to try to make it by ourselves and make it on our own. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. We're going to talk about this in a little bit more detail in a moment. But just, did you hear the the one versus the two? The two is better than one. Some of us have been in the military, and if you've been in the army, you know from the beginning of basic training until the end, you're always to be with someone. You have what they call in the army a battle buddy. In the Navy, we called it a swim buddy. And even in what is arguably the most difficult, demanding military training, Navy Special Warfare, you're always doing it with your swim buddy. You're never alone. You're responsible for him and he is responsible for you. You are literally at times tied together. Togetherness, Solomon is saying, is greater than loneliness. Connection and cooperation is greater than competition. And here, the preacher outlines reasons. Why? Why are two better than one? Because, hey, I'm doing it on my own just fine. Why are two better than one? Well, in verse 9, it's due to productivity. You're more productive in work. If If the man is toiling by himself because he wants to make money, make a name, make success, Solomon is saying, you're going to have a better success. You're going to be more productive working together. You know, interestingly, isn't it, when we're born, some of the first sentences that we probably speak are something along these lines. I do it myself, right? I do it myself. And as we grow and mature, that attitude still comes with us. I mean, imagine a mature adult saying, I alone can fix it. Productivity, the blessings and benefits of working side by side. But there's another reason, another reason. And the next few reasons really do have in mind the idea of travel in the ancient Near East, the difficulties and dangers of travel. And we see verse 10, help. One of the benefits is just plain old help able to receive help in times of trouble. If all alone, you might go down and stay down. And I think we've all seen the ad, right? Help, I'm fallen and I can't get up. And you know, there's an industry now for the elderly to have some means of communicating those who live alone. They've fallen, they're in distress. 
They need help. Here it is in travel. You're in times of danger and difficulty. Here, the believer knows that he or she is called to lift up with words of encouragement, to remind a fellow believer of the love and mercy of God. Fallen down, lifted up. But there's a third reason. In verse 11, we see it. Warmth. Warmth. Yes, travel in those days in the desert at night. You know how deserts work. Hot in the day, cold at night. Travelers stayed at times under the same blanket. Does this talk about marriage? Of course, but it's far beyond marriage. It's in particular a physical representation of a a spiritual reality as well. Just as the Lord's Supper, there will be physical elements that represent, represent spiritual truths. And here is spiritual warmth going through life with other believers. You know, every now and then, especially when people join the church, we'll sing, we are God's people. And verse 4 has these words, we die alone for own its own, each member loses fire, yet joined in one the flame burns on to give warmth and light and to inspire. You all know that when you go camping and you build a fire, what's one way to to stop the fire, to, to put it out? You just remove all of the logs, remove all of the sticks, and they go out on their own. Warmth is needed because it's easy to grow cold in the Christian life. It's easy to become numb, to have, as it were, spiritual frostbite, which does great damage to yourself and indeed to others. You might even say that it's possible in the Christian life to get so cold that you almost come to the point of freezing to death. And so that's why the companion is there to to help reheat us with the good news of the gospel because the gospel warms cold hearts and the gospel melts hard hearts. I keep meeting people out there who think if you preach grace, if you teach grace, somehow that's going to give people license to sin and they're going to have a low view of God's law. No, a high view of God's law gives people a hunger for God's grace and an appreciation for God's grace. And the gospel both warms cold hearts and the gospel melts hard hearts. And there's a fourth reason. We see it in verse 12, protection. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Protection. You see, there's robbers on the road. We think about even the good Samaritan, right? The man traveling. He fell among robbers. There's safety in numbers. Someone who has our back. Because there's the danger of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Peter, probably in view of his own fall into sin, says that we have an enemy who roars around like a lion seeking someone to devour. There's safety in numbers. There's safety in someone who has our back. Um, I've got a few men around the country 
that I can text and say, this is going on, pray for me. And within five minutes, all of these men will respond and say, I'm on it. I've got your back, praying for you. One friend always says, I got your six. For those of you that know what that means, it's your six o'clock position behind you. In other words, I'm covering you from behind. Even Paul in Ephesians 6 says, pray for me. Who's got your back, friends? Who's got your back? Who loves you enough? And who do you love enough to share your distress and difficulties with? Who's praying for you? Have you asked anyone to pray for you lately? This central section of the text that we've just looked at is is characteristic of Hebrew writing. It's the most important in this part. He's going to start, he's going to spend time in the middle, and he's going to trail off toward the end. Often in English Western, we kind of build to a climax. But here is another example of kind of this middle section. Two are better than one, running together, being kind of the central, most important. Now, whereas running alone is by yourself and for yourself and running together is with others and for others, now the preacher is going to have to say something about running to the finish line. Let me just read verse 13 and then 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who knew no longer how to take, who no longer knew how to take advice. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come after will not rejoice in him. Surely this, is also, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This, these verses, this section is, is hard. It's, it's difficult to understand. It's difficult to interpret. I'm thankful that we understand that... Uh, Scripture, not all Scripture is equally clear. Some is difficult. The perspicuity of Scripture. It's helpful because here is one that's a little bit hard to understand. Um, think about the, uh, the details of the story. It's a, is it a rag to riches story? Is it about Solomon's father, David? Is it David, the, the, the shepherd, the, 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 the youngest of the brothers, elevated to king? Well, it speaks of being in prison. So is it, is it Joseph? Well, most likely this is just a story from somewhere else and it's something that Solomon has observed and he's using to illustrate. He's using to illustrate that a generation comes and a generation goes. And in particular, the language here was really hard to, to translate. But it's this idea of one day this king and every king will be forgotten. Fame is, is fleeting. Everyone is expendable. In other words, this youth who came up to take this older king's place then became the older king, struggled with the difficulties of kingship. He went away and he's forgotten about. So there's some lack of clarity in this text, but my friends, the good news is there is something really clear and unmistakable. Look at how he has another better than Again, better was a poor and wise youth 
than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Because what's clear and unmistakable here is this focus on an unwillingness to heed advice, counsel, wisdom. This is very clear. Uh, It reminds me of... uh, a saying attributed to Mark Twain. He says, it's not the parts of the Bible that I, uh, um, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that I don't like. It's the parts that I do. And here it's clear. This old and foolish king used to know how to take advice, but now no longer. He faded. He didn't finish the way he began. Because here one commentator looks at this section and says, it is better to lead with a teachable spirit than to be too proud to let anyone teach you anything at all. You see, Solomon is drawing attention in all of the wisdom literature in the Bible that wise Christians ask for and they listen to counsel and they accept correction. I'm really looking forward to next month's table talk, pride and humility, because both of them are going to be addressed in do you ask for counsel? Are you willing to receive counsel? Here's what Solomon says in Proverbs. Let the wise hear and increase in learning and the one who understands obtain guidance. Give instruction, he says, to a wise man and he will be still wiser. In an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Do you all ask other people for input? Do do I always recognize that I've got blind spots? And kids, what's the deal about blind spots? You can't see into them. You have to trust what someone else says. Are we the kind of people that ask for counsel, ask for wisdom, ask for advice? Or are we people that don't? But on the flip side, there's a danger. Because there are a lot of times people that are offering advice, offering counsel, offering wisdom. But they're not discerning enough to know that that person is not asking for it. Are we a church of people who know that we haven't arrived, who know that we have blind spots, who aren't going to be like this old and foolish king who knew no longer how to take advice? This image of this king born in poverty, born in obscurity, and yet exalted It leans forward and anticipates, of course, a greater king to come. The one that we've just sung about who was born in poverty, obscurity, and yet now is exalted in an everlasting glory. Because you see, this king comes and this king goes and it's forgotten. But the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, is leaning forward and anticipating this greater king to come. The only king whose fame will last forever. The only king who will not be 
and indeed we're living proof of it, has not been forgotten. So let's conclude with a few thoughts now about Jesus and running the human race. In his earthly ministry, Jesus ran the race alone for us. Jesus is the only man who has lived a life of perfect obedience. He is the only man who merited life through his obedience. Jesus ran the race alone for us. He was alone. He, he was forsaken by Israel in John 1, which we looked at Friday evening. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He came to his people Israel, and he was rejected by Israel. And even the 12 men that he called to himself and spent time with, as he approached his death, they all ran whether it's Judas in betrayal, whether it's Peter in denial, all of them split. He's alone. And in the mysterious working of the triune God at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, for a time, Jesus is even alone from his Father. For a moment in time, the, the intimate fellowship of the Trinity is torn asunder as Jesus bears the awesome weight of God's right justice and wrath on sin. My friends, in his earthly ministry, whether in his three years walking the highways and byways of Palestine or on the cross, Jesus ran the race alone for us. But now, in his exalted and heavenly ministry, his ministry at present, Jesus runs together with us and for us. Indeed, the Christian has God as Father, God as Helper with the indwelling Holy Spirit, and God as Friend, as Jesus himself tells us. And as Emmanuel, as God with us, Jesus runs with us and for us to the end. My friends, as we look back on this first advent and as we look forward to the second advent of Jesus Christ, and as we live by faith in the here and now, this time between the already and the not yet of the Christian life, may the song that we sing in our hearts sound something like this. And our God is with us, Emmanuel. He's come to save us, Emmanuel. And we will never face life alone now that God has made himself known as father and friend with us through the end, Emmanuel. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, the one whose name means that he will save his people from their sins. We thank you, Father, that he was also Emmanuel, God with us. 
O Father, when we through our sin could not make our way to you, you for us and for our salvation came to us in the person and work of Jesus. Father, help us as we put this Advent in the rearview mirror and look forward to uh, even the next year's Advent unless Jesus returns in the meantime. Father, help us to rejoice that Jesus ran the race alone for us, but he now runs together with us. We thank you, Father, for the companionship that we have with one another in Christ and the companionship that we now have with you by faith. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.